Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gittler. And this is episode 29 in our series for 2017. And today's date is Friday the 18th of August. And Leon, this week we're talking with Lauren Magna of Ibis World. That's right. Lauren Magna is going to be talking to us about the retail sector and Amazon's impact. And that'd be very interesting indeed. And after that, we've got a chat with RMIT economist Sinclair Davidson, who's very disappointed about almost everything in our parliament. Sinclair's going to be talking to us about the prospect and the economic outlook of a future shortened government, which could be looking like it's on the cards with the developments in Canberra. It does indeed. Meantime, we've got a parliament looks like a fight in a chook house. So now, Leon, let's listen to Lauren Magna. Lauren Magna, what's your view about the Australian retail scenes? The uh, latest uh, figures from the ABS show, the session, the sector is now in recession. All these retailers are now going under and uh, we've got Amazon coming. What's your view about it? Yeah, so there's been quite a number of retailers in Australia that have struggled over the past five years. So they've been operating in an increasingly challenging retail environment, um, which has been plagued with weak consumer sentiment, subdued demand, and also intensifying competition, which is coming from the onslaught of international competitors, um, such as H&M, Zara, and Topshop, and also the ongoing threat of online shopping competition. Um, So these are the factors that retailers have faced over the past five years, and it's put um, quite a lot of downwards pressure on prices and that's why we're seeing quite stagnant um, slash negative growth in those retail figures um, because what's happening is that retailers are trying to, um, they're fighting for the consumer dollar so they need to offer cheaper prices, more affordable prices and better value for their consumer, particularly as we have those global fast fashion chains that I mentioned before um, entering Australia. um, As these big retailers like Zara, H&M, they have quite significant global economies of scale. Um, So that means that they can take trends straight from the latest runways and then make them available for mass consumption as quickly as possible. Um, And they also offer these new and updated styles at quite affordable prices as well. So it's been quite difficult for Australian retailers to compete with this, um, given they've been fairly insulated um, in the Australian economy prior to the entry of these chains. Right. I mean, that's fascinating. And uh, West Farmers uh, has announced that they're not proceeding with the Officeworks IPO. And a lot of that would be due to uh, Amazon coming because Amazon would be selling pens and computers and uh, phones, everything that uh, Officeworks sell. But also they would selling it cheaper and they would also be able to deliver it to your home. Yes, so Amazon's imminent arrival into the Australian market is set to really shake up the retail sector substantially. Um, So they've indicated their plans to really challenge domestic retail prices. So they've been conducting a bit of research into prices that Australian retailers charge on a wide range of products. Um, And their plan is to set prices at a 30% discount to these domestic retailers. So that will really appeal to price-conscious Australian consumers um, so what we, the local retailers here have had a really um, difficult time sort of adjusting to a seismic shift in consumer spending behaviour, um, particularly as bargain hunting has become increasingly prevalent and consumers um, are becoming more accustomed to buying things on sale and refusing to pay full price. 
Right. Um, so uh, what do you expect the outcome of Amazon coming to Australia will be? I suppose it's difficult to say right now. Um, so for retailers, it's not it's not all doom and gloom, I suppose. Um, sort of not the picture I'm trying to paint, um, I suppose. But what retailers will need to do over the next five years in order to compete with Amazon and also um, the continuous um, onslaught of these international competitors into Australia um, is sort of just um, really look at how their brand positioning um, is set in the market and have a clearly defined product offering. Um, so they need to really understand who their customer is and what drives their purchasing decisions and also how best to communicate with them. So a lot of retailers are using um, a lot of customer data to sort of analyse where their customers shop, what drives them to spend money, what drives them to go in store or shop online um, and using that data um, to then align their strategies so that they're able to maximise market share as much as possible. So this, the Amazon arrival in certain respects would not be all that different from what Aldi's doing to uh, Coles and Woolworths, would it? Very similar, I suppose, although it's quite a different market uh, seeing as um, Amazon is purely online, um, basically, um, and sort of in a different sort of sector of retail, whereas um, Audi just sort of specialises mainly in the groceries um, segment. Um, But yes, very similar in the way that they've come into the market um, and they've slashed prices across a number of product ranges. And that sort of helped them to boost market share in a time where consumers um, have sort of reined in their discretionary spending. They don't want to spend as much. They're preferring to sort of pay down debt and save as much as they can, um, given that economic conditions are somewhat uncertain um, over the next five years. What do you expect? The, I mean, we've seen a lot of retailers go into receivership and uh, do you expect this trend will continue and do you expect it will uh, accelerate with Amazon coming and more international players setting up? Well, over the next five years, we are expected to see more of these international retailers sort of expanding their networks and, um, you know, Amazon's coming in. Online retailers are expected to continue to benefit as well from consumers um, increasingly wanting that convenience and comfort of shopping online. Um, So there'll be a lot of um, competition in the industry. Um, Hard to say really what um, will happen to individual brands, I suppose. But I guess the main thing is that retailers will really need to sort of look at reinventing themselves constantly and staying up to date with new technology innovations um, and sort of continuing to understand what their consumers want from them in order to um, sort of have that long-term survival, um, especially now that consumers are expecting more from retailers than ever before. So they're craving that constant freshness and newness um, and they also want convenience and an overall seamless shopping experience across all channels, um, both physical and online. So retailers that are able to sort of keep up with the pace of the international retailers that are coming to Australia um, will find that they're more successful than if they were to sort of stay behind the times and just continue their business models um, as if these new technological um, innovations were not um, sort of being introduced and implemented. So retailers will need to have omni-channel offerings. Yes, that's exactly right. So What we're sort of expecting to see is that there will be sort of a blurring between um, online and physical um, retail. So it's sort of um, what we call sort of a hybrid retail model. Um, So where physical stores, instead of um, sort of acting as a traditional or retail outlet, they will instead act as showrooms. Um, So there's an example, um, Sneaker Boy 
in Melbourne. It's a footwear store. Um, so, for example, that acts as a showroom. And consumers go in there and they have a look at all the products that are available. Um, but there's no actual purchasable um, products on site. So, once the consumer decides what they want from that showroom, they're able to order it on an iPad and it's delivered, um, you know, the next day. Um, so, by retail sort of um, implementing these new models, they're able to reduce the amount of their floor space that's dedicated to storing inventory, which is quite beneficial um, to retailers given that, especially for a footwear retailer, um, up to 50% of floor space can be just devoted to just holding all the um, footwear and inventory. Um, so it can really help to minimise rent costs, particularly in a, um, in a time where rent costs are increasing quite significantly in the major capital cities. Um, so it's definitely something we're expecting to see where consumers can go and look at the products in the showroom, purchase them online, um, in-store and then have them delivered the next day for that um, sort of ultimate convenience and that seamless sort of shopping experience. Some segments in the retail market though must be relatively immune from this. I mean if, if you walk up and down Collins Street in Melbourne there's a lot of names there that probably aren't going to be affected but it's really going to separate the buying levels isn't it? Yes, so that's exactly right. We've been seeing a trend sort of towards polarisation um, in the retail market. So um, those uh, retailers that you mentioned along Collins Street, um, sort of premium luxury brands, what we've seen is that consumers are sort of shifting expenditure to cheaper, more affordable apparel offered by sort of H&M and Zara and then pairing these items um, with just a few statement pieces from the premium um, and luxury end. So it's sort of leaving a big gap in the middle market and that's why we've seen a lot of middle market sort of retailers such as, such as Marks and David Lawrence, for example. Um, their, their main point of advantage previously was sort of offering that on-trend fashion forward clothing but now that's been offered by H&M and Topshop for a fraction of the price. So uh, it'll, there'll be a polarisation and we'll see the premium end will survive but uh, the, in the middle market range uh, they'll be struggling unless they turn <laughs> omnichannel. Yes um, exactly so the middle market retailers just what they need to I suppose look at is um, the way their business models operate. So a lot of them have um, very good at sort of uh, looking at their models and um, understanding um, where the profit comes from. Now, profit comes from the supply side they're increasingly um, discovering. So that involves sort of um, improving sourcing methods, um, sort of working on streamlining their su supply chain, um, you know, sourcing from cheaper manufacturers overseas so that they're able to sort of, um, you know, pass on these cost savings to consumers and then they're able to better compete um, with these global fast fashion chains. Um, and also offering uh, products of a higher quality as well really helps, um, particularly given that H&M sort of works on a very fast fashion model um, and the quality of the clothing um, is more meant to be worn, they're meant to just be worn a couple of times and then the consumer usually moves on to the next trend. Right, and final question. Uh, a lot's said about the incursion of online, but the, the bottom line is that a lot of people just enjoy going shopping. They enjoy going to a shop and seeing the goods and uh, going through what's available. Isn't that the case? Yes, that's very true. <clears throat> so there is definitely a social experience sort of connected with shopping in store um, but I guess on the other side of that is that 
we live in a time where people are increasingly busy with work and family commitments um, and often don't have time to physically go into the stores um, and spend time looking for what they are after. So that's why online has been so well-placed to benefit from the trend of consumers really desiring that convenience and um, the convenience of being able to shop from home or their office um, and have the products delivered to them um, within a short space of time. So that's really appealed to consumers. But yes, you're totally right. So when online shopping was first sort of first started becoming quite popular, a lot of consumers raced to online to start purchasing things online. But now what we're seeing is that people are starting to go back to the stores now, um, particularly to the stores that have really worked on sort of building their in-store customer experience. Um, so, for example, um, there's a country road in Albert Park um, and it has a cafe. It's sort of more of a it's a lifestyle store. So people can come in, have a coffee, um, peruse the items for sale um, and things like that. Glue as well, Glue Store also has a cafe in yeah. store. So it sort of makes it more of an overall experience for the customer rather than just come in, buy something and then leave. Laura Magna, thank you so much for your time. You're so welcome. Well, how do you think about that, Leon? Well, I think it's going to be quite a challenge for retailers. Uh, some will actually struggle. The smart ones will know how to deal with it. They will, yeah. I don't think it's as bad overall as um, everyone's been fearing, but everybody's got to be on their metal. It's going to be a major challenge. And now another challenge, Sinclair Davidson and the Parliament. Sinclair Davidson with Australian politics at the moment. We might be looking at the prospect of a shortened Labor government. How do you see the economics of that playing out? Um, I, I think it's very interesting at the moment. It's good fun for, for, for those of us who like watching politics. It's been very amusing. Um, I think uh, the reality TV producers must be complaining that they're getting all this competition from Canberra. I, I think it's it's actually quite a bit of a circus. And uh, I, I also think that um, it wouldn't be unreasonable to have a, a, an early election, generally speaking, which, of course, does then raise the issue of a, a, a shortened Labour government. And I think some serious questions about their economic needs to be thought about. Um, certainly, they've spoken a lot about taxation policy. They've spoken a lot about inequality. And um, I also think they've spoken a lot about using the tax system to overcome inequality, which to my mind is a problem because as it stands, Australia has one of the world's most progressive tax and transfer systems to actually lead to a situation where the after-tax inequality in Australia isn't as high and not at all as high as the before tax inequality situation. So our tax and welfare, our, our um, means-tested welfare system works very well in this particular area. So um, over the last while, we've seen the, uh, the the opposition's economics team talk about inequality, but normally on a before tax basis, which of course suits their, 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 their game quite nicely. Um, I've also uh, been a bit worried about when they talk about taxing trusts, because and they want to tax trusts like companies. But mm. the problem really is at the moment, trust are taxed like individuals. And I would have thought if the government had a choice between taxing 
something as a company or taxing it as an individual, you want to tax it as an individual and not as a company. Now, the only benefit there is to taxing trusts as companies is if you then also tax them as individuals. And now what that means in practice is getting rid of franking credits. Now, if you get rid of franking credits, you're then taxing the trust at 30% or 28.5%, whatever the number is, depending on, on its size, and then taxing the individuals, that's double taxation. Now, one of the great reforms of the Hawke government was the introduction of franking credits right. to get rid of that double taxation. Now, if the Labour Party wants to reintroduce double taxation, let them say so. Let them be clear and open about it. And I, I think we would have a very different response. So the the, the great reform of the, of the Hawke era was franking credits. The great reform of the Keating era was superannuation. And unfortunately, at the minute, we've got politicians on both sides, really, that are trying to unravel that. Um, and and that, isn't, that isn't working well. Even if you think now in small businesses, they've lowered the tax rate to 28.5% for small businesses. And of course, they are stranding a whole lot of franking credits that in the past haven't been paid out and small uh, share and investors in these small businesses are complaining. Where's our franking credits that we paid at 30%? Well, they're gone. And that's how the system's supposed to work. And now you've got to think, is that how it's going to work with uh, trusts. The opposition made a mistake on nominee companies recently where they actually made the argument that nominee companies had beneficial ownership. Um, I thought that was a big mistake. It's a silly mistake to have made. And so you've got to start thinking, are they really ready for government? Are they not? Uh, will they listen to advice? Will they not? Um, but these are questions that you've got to ask of every opposition that stand a good chance of forming government. So uh, do you see any major changes if uh, the shorten, if a shorten Labor government comes in? Um, yes, I do. I think they've made far too much noise about inequality in the tax system to, to do nothing. They will be criticised uh, by their supporters. And I suppose, I mean, uh, um, every government should be criticised by their supporters if they don't keep their provinces, promises. I would imagine we would see action on uh, negative gearing, which I think would be a mistake. Negative gearing is a stock standard deduction for the creation of a taxable asset. I know a lot of people don't like it. A lot of people don't understand it. A lot of people think that it should be abolished, but that's actually simply a tax increase. Um, so we would see action on negative gearing, certainly for um, they would allow a negative gearing for new housing stock, but not for existing housing stock. I think that would place a massive burden on a large number of landlords who very often are people like teachers, policemen, firemen, that sort of income bracket. They would really, really struggle um, on, a, on, a, on an ability to pay tax. So uh, we would see action there. We would see action on trusts, which again would be a big mistake. Um, I think it's probably worthwhile looking at trusts why they have grown, but to a large extent, it's going to it's going to revolve around factors such as Australia not being particularly strong on wedding contracts, um, out of community property contracts, and so on and so forth. So it's a mechanism of maintaining your wealth um, in a family situation. So uh, it's worth looking at, but it's unfortunately I think what we've seen is that the solutions have already been preordained which would be problematic. What about capital gains tax? Do you see changes there? I think they would like to again. They're probably talking, uh, certainly there's been a lot of talk about doing away with the 50% discount, which uh, John Howard introduced in the early noughties. Again, the, the the challenge there is that if you're going to do away with it, are you going to grandfather people in place? Are you simply going to uh, massively increase the capital gains tax? How will you deal with inflation? Um, the whole idea of the 50% discount was, to act, was actually a simplification measure. Um, so 
do, do we go back to very complicated measures of indexing or do we actually just start taxing people on inflation? That then creates a, a bit of a perverse incentive for government as to what they do about inflation because if all of a sudden they're taxing inflation, why would you minimise it? So there, there, there's a lot of very populist talk that we've heard from the government around the soak the rich, um, inequality, what have you, which I actually think augurs badly for good economic policy. This coalition government has not distinguished itself in handling the uh, budget deficit and debt. No. Where do you see a Labor government travelling? Looking at their rhetoric, their idea is that they will explicitly balance the budget at a higher level of GDP, which means increasing taxation. But at the same time, if they're talking about reducing inequality, that means they also have a spending agenda. I don't think we've seen too much about their spending agenda, but we have seen quite a lot about their taxing agenda. Um, Soak the the rich policies are probably inefficient, generally speaking, at the margin. And I think that is going to be a problem because as you soak the rich more and more, you probably undermine the drivers of economic growth, which of course then adds to debt and deficit. So it it all becomes a vicious cycle of of not doing much about the debt and deficit. Um, Growth is very sluggish. Wages are sluggish. There are good reasons for that sluggishness. And that's got to do with poor economic policy choices that we've seen on both sides in the last 10 years. So you don't see any changes with the budget and debt situation? I think if we see a change in government, we will probably see the same muddling through, probably with a little bit slightly different rhetoric, but more or less the same muddling through. So I, I, I think between our, all of our friends in Canberra, I mean, there's good reasons why they are talking about the, the dual nationality of their counterparts and what have you, is because they literally don't really have any serious ideas as to what should be done next. They, they literally don't know. They're all terrified. They're all rabbits in the cross, in, in, in the headlights. And uh, bread and circuses that we're seeing at the moment is all very good fun. But in actual fact, with the rate of borrowing that is going on every week, with the budget deficit still being massive, um, with spending still really out of control, they should be focusing on the economy. And it's something that they've actually all been incapable of doing. Given the political upheaval that we're seeing at the moment, we're unlikely to see that happening. Uh, very much so. I, I really don't see that we will be seeing any strong action being done on, on serious economic matters for a long, long time. It's, it, it's, it, it's sad to say, but I, I think we're in, a level, we're in a system of government where uh, they can't chew gum and walk at the same time. And, and to a large extent, um, I think we in Australia were spoiled by good government over a long period of time. We had Hawke and Keating and Howard and Costello. And uh, it may well be that we're back to the bad old days of bad government. Which is really unfortunate. Yes, I mean, we, we could be going back to a period where we have very short term governments. Yes, yes, yes. Now, I, I have to say, I'm, I'm, I'm not opposed to the notion of short election cycles. I think a four year election cycle is a terrible idea. I like the idea of three year cycles, but I would like to see the idea of a government on a three year cycle getting re elected on a regular basis because people think that they are a good government and because we've got a good opposition holding their feet to the fire. Um, the the way which liberal democracy is supposed to work, which is unfortunately not what we're seeing at the moment. We are seeing bad governments 
been thrown out by even worse oppositions and a, a certain a, a, a lack of willingness to actually confront the public and say this is what needs to be done this is how we're going to do it here is our plan it's good for us all and we're just not seeing that at all so uh, this could actually be fascinating space to watch over the next few weeks uh, I yes I, I I think if, if you enjoy upheaval and chaos and colorfulness um, it, it's very amusing it's good fun but if you want if you're actually thinking about the long-term economic prospects for the nation um, it's actually pretty sad uh, that, that we're just like tearing ourselves apart over sillinesses like people born in Australia not being really Australian enough to be in the Parliament I, I, I think I think it's absolutely fascinating to watch well Sinclair Davidson thank you very much for your time. Thank you. So how do you read that, Leah? Well, it's very interesting. It'll be interesting to see how the shortened government performs economically and uh, whether Chris Bowen will be a better treasurer than uh, Scott Morrison. And I have to say I'm not overly confident. Well, let's just see how that develops. Both parties are pretty well uh, got crack marks up in the edifice. Now the news, Leon. Well, Gary, first of all, CEOs of President Trump's two business advisory council are leaving in protest over Mr. Trump's comments that two sides are equally to blame for the violence in Charlottesville, Virginia. And as a result, the president has disbanded both groups. And he tweeted, rather than putting pressure on the business people of the Manufacturing Council and Strategy and Policy Forum, I am ending both. Thank you all. His tweet came a few minutes after 16 remaining members of the Strategy and Policy Forum had unanimously voted to disband the group. They'd called for the vote in an emergency phone conference convened by the forum's chairman, Stephen Schwartzman, the CEO and chairman of the Blackstone Group investment firm. They had demanded the call because they were angry about Mr. Trump's claim at a press conference on Tuesday where he slammed both the alt-right and the alt-left for the deadly violence in Charlottesville. Jamie Dimon, J.P. Morgan Chase Chief Executive Officer, said he was behind the breakup. And he wrote in a memo to employees, it's a leader's role in business or government to bring people together, not tear them apart. Three of the 19 original business leaders on the forum had quit because of the president's stance on climate change and immigration. The vote to disband the forum came days after at least six members of the American Manufacturing Council had quit after Mr. Trump blamed, in his words, many sides for the violence in Charlottesville. And the latest development is a huge blow for America's first CEO president who has vowed to make the US economy great again. And it also underscores Mr. Trump's growing problems with CEOs. On Wednesday, Mr. Trump attacked Amazon, saying the company's hurting retailers and causing them to shed jobs. Amazon, of course, is run by Jeff Jeff Bezos, who also owns the Washington Post, which has published articles critical of Mr. Trump. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and that will be the source of the ire. The tragedy of all this is that the Civil War has reared its ugly head again, and that is terribly dangerous. Well, there is a, there is a real issue there now, and uh, you've got the rise of militia groups in America, which is quite scary. Yeah, very much so. Another interesting story is that China has warned it will take action if the US damages trade links. China has expressed grave concerns about a memorandum signed by US President Donald Trump directing US Trade Representative Robert Lighthouser to examine China stealing US intellectual property. The probe comes at a time when President Trump has asked China to rein in North Korea's nuclear missile program. China said the US should act prudently and stick to its World Trade Organization's pledges and not destroy 
destroy principles of multilateralism and said it would will inevitably adopt all appropriate measures and resolutely safeguard China's lawful rights. And the state-run news agency Xinhua also attacked the US investigation, describing it as a unilateralist bearing of fangs that would hurt both sides. Now, the investigation could take a year to include, but it's likely to cast a shadow over relations between the US and China, which is America's largest trading partner. And also ours. And uh, on that basis, I guess China is more important to us than America. And it's a huge issue. I mean, if there is a disruption of trade between America and China, that's going to really affect the US economy and the Chinese economy. Now, the Reserve Bank of Australia has maintained its focus on the rising Australian dollar in combination with household debt levels in the minutes of its August board meeting, where it decided to keep the cash rate at the record low of 1.5%. The RBA said the Australian dollar needed to be monitored. The RBA said a further appreciation of the exchange rate would result in a slower pickup in inflation and economic activity than currently forecast. And the RBA also expressed concern about household debt and seemed less confident that the growth in house prices were moderating to an acceptable degree. Another important piece of news is its Commonwealth Bank Chief Executive Ian Narev has fallen on his sword in the wake of the CBA's money laundering scandal. He will retire at the end of 2018 financial year and the bank's chair Catherine Livingston said the exact timing of Mr Narev's departure will depend on the bank finding a replacement. With the CBA rocked by allegations of money laundering, there have been calls for Mr Narev's removal. Ms Livingston said the bank's announcement made it clear the bank was focused on succession planning and was intending to keep the market fully informed and provide certainty for the business. And Narev, of course, has now uh, there's been some problems exposed of, uh, over his time in his previous post with the bank. So basically, he's been pushed under the bus. Yep, indeed. Yep, big bus. Now, spiralling gas and electricity prices, rent and dwelling costs and private health insurance premiums will leave Australians with less cash on hand. Ibis World Research has revealed that Australians' discretionary income is expected to decline for two years in a row, in 2016-17 and 2018, and that's for the first time since 1992. And it has forecast a 3.2% decline in discretionary income this financial year. Now, discretionary income, of course, is a take-home pay from wages and other income, less any necessary household expenses. And that 3.2% fall follows slippage of 2.3% in 2016-17. And Ibis World says rising costs will exceed the amount of income growth of 1% this financial year. Still tough down there in in the suburbs, isn't it? It's going to be very tough out there. And the other one that shows people are struggling is that wage growth remains anemic. ABS figures show wage growth slowed in the June quarter to 0.5% from the previous three months when it rose 0.6%. And this means annual wages are holding at 1.9%, which is totally in line with inflation. Wages growth has been that rate, 1.9% for the past four quarters. Now, South Australia, which has been pushing for renewable energy over fossil fuels, will have a new $650 million solar thermal plant in Port Augusta to provide all the state government's energy needs. Construction of the 150 megawatt solar thermal power plant at Port Augusta, called Aurora, and the biggest of its kind in the world, will begin in 2018 and finish in 2020. Now, concentrated solar thermal energy uses lenses and reflectors to reflect concentrate sunlight and harness the sun's power and this produces steam to drive a turbine now in july 
Tesla secured the contract to install the world's biggest grid-scale lithium-ion battery in the state, and at the time experts described it as a litmus test for large-scale renewable energy storage reliability. Now, California-based Solar Reserve will build the 150-megawatt plant, which will have a standard output under normal conditions at 135 megawatts. It will have the capability of exceeding that during the evening peak demand in favourable conditions. And the new solar thermal plant is part of a trend that has seen South Australia shifting from coal-fired power stations to energy from wind, solar and gas, racing ahead of the rest of Australia in renewable energy. And wind power already supplies 40% of South Australia's energy. And it's uh, setting an example for the rest of Australia. Yeah, thermal solar power is very good, very powerful, but of course it means that they'll need more batteries as well. Which is why they're setting up that plant. Now, the August profit reporting season is in full swing now and the company reports are coming in. And here are some of the latest. Horizon has reported a net loss of $188 million. Gloves and protective clothing Ansel posted a 7.2% drop in full year net profit to $147.7 million, or Aussie $186.8 million. JB Hi-Fi's underlying net profit has risen 36.5% to $207.7 million in 2017. Bendigo and Adelaide Bank posted a 4.2% rise in net profit to a 418.3 million. Australia's largest gold miner, Newcrest, posted a 7% fall in full year net profit to US 308 million. ANZ has reported a third quarter cash profit of 1.79 billion. No comparable figure was offered from the same period a year ago, but the bank said unaudited cash profit was up 5.3% on the average of the first two quarters of the current financial year. Revenue fell 0.3%. Challenger full year net profit soared 21% to 397.6 million. Normalised net profit after tax rose 6.4% to 384.9 million for the year ended June 30. GPT has posted a net profit after tax of 752.3 million, up 28.3%. Domino's Pizza Enterprises underlying net profit rose 28.8% to 118.5 million in 2017. Earnings before interest tax appreciation and amortisation was up 28.3% to 230.9 million. The Domino's figures were short of guidance. Flexi Group Cash net profit after tax fell 4% to 90.3 million. Origin Energy has posted a 2.2 billion dollar net loss, more than three times the loss of a year earlier on the back of a 3.1 billion dollar write down flag last week. Seven West Media reported a full year loss of 744 million compared with a profit of 184.3 million in the previous year, following a write down of 988.8 million in non-cash impairments including the value of its television, newspaper, magazine and Yahoo seven assets. Vaccines and blood product supplier CSL posted a 7.6% increase in net profit to US $1.34 billion. That's uh, Aussie $1.7 billion. Computer share posted a 4.6 rise in earnings before interest tax depreciation amortisation of $557.2 million. Fairfax reported a net profit of $83.9 million compared with a $772.6 million loss in the previous year. Woodside reported a 49% increase in first half profit of $507 million. Sonic Healthcare posted a 5.2% fall in net profit for the 12 months through to June of 427.8 million compared to 451.4 million a year ago. Iluca widened its first half loss to 81.5 million, far ahead of the 20.9 million loss for the previous corresponding period, and charges of 165 million in impairment and redundancy costs hit the bottom line. And finally, shopping centre giant Westfield Corporation posted a 20% increase in half-year profit to US 589 million, which is 753 million Aussie. Not bad, actually. A lot of people saying shopping centres are under pressure, but Westfield seems to sell 
soldier on. So it's a very patchy set of figures, Gary. Very patchy, yeah. yeah. And uh, that's it for this week. And next week we're talking to Margaret Johnson. Uh, she's a business coach all the way from the US. Should be very good. In the meantime, you can keep in touch with us on Twitter at TalkingBizBRZ or on Facebook. Take care and we'll talk to you next week.